my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. We're so excited to welcome Jennifer Weiner to the show today. She is the best-selling author of 17 books that have sold over 11 million copies across the world. Her latest release is the new novel, That Summer. I have followed Jennifer's career for a while. Um, Years ago, I put her on my 25 working moms to follow on Twitter list for Forbes. And the way she tweets, it's just obvious that she has such a spark. And I can't wait to hear her story. Jennifer, did you start out wanting to be a romance novelist? Well, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. It was always the only thing I was ever any good at. You know, I loved being a reader. So I was a reader before I was a writer. And then I was a journalist for about 10 years before I published my first novel. I'm not sure I'd call myself a romance writer. I'm not sure the romance community would claim me. There's probably like not enough like love and sex stuff in my books, but writing was always the only thing I ever wanted to do. Okay. So you think of yourself as what? Like when people say to you, what do you do? What, mm-hmm. How do you respond? Um, well, I usually say that I'm a freelance writer because that just like ends all the questions right there. Like, If you say that you're a novelist, everybody's like, oh my God, I have an idea for a novel. I want to write a novel. Let me tell you about my idea for a novel, which I know would be a huge bestseller if I could only find like a long weekend to write a book. And then I have to be like, oh, well, that sounds, you know, really great. Although, isn't it? It's kind of like saying like, I mean, it's almost like positioning yourself as a starving artist when you're like an Oscar winner. I mean, it's a little bit like saying I went to college in New Jersey instead of saying I went to Princeton. (laughs) If you say that you're a novelist, then what's the immediate follow-up question? Have you written anything that I've read? And then you have to be like, well, I don't know what you read. Like, I don't know if you read. Like, you know, because usually, and not to generalize, but it's it's usually like the older white guys who get like really in my face about it. 
you know, and, and I'm like, well, what do you like to read? And they're like, Tom Clancy. And I'm like, okay, then you've probably never heard of me. You <laughs> yeah. know, and we can just like, we can just like move along. But, you know, if you say freelance writer, I mean, honestly, it all ends up the same place because then they say, well, what do you write? And I have to say, well, mostly fiction these days, you know, and then it's like, well, have you written anything I've read? And then you're just right back where you started. I don't have a good answer. I really don't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start I telling people I'm an accountant. I'm going to tell them I'm an accountant. What if you say I'm a writer and mm-hmm. then it's going to end up in the same place? I think freelance right. is an odd word to use for what you do. You have had 17 bestsellers. <laughs> yeah, but I, am, but I am a freelancer. I mean, it's at the end of the day, it's like I don't, you know, I don't work for a company. I, I don't go to an office. I'm, I'm a freelancer. I'm owning it. I'm owning it. Another theme that I keep seeing coming up in your life is women. You've mm-hmm. written best-selling books about really strong, interesting women. When mm-hmm. you went to college in New Jersey, Sam, you lobbied for, <laughs> Jennifer lobbied for, you know, to make the social clubs at your college co-ed. Yes. You wrote your senior thesis in college about the way pregnant women are portrayed in media. Mm-hmm. Have you always cared about women? Like, wh- where does that come from? Well, my mom is a feminist. I grew up in a feminist household. And when I was in my 20s, my mom actually came out and she'd fallen in love with a woman. And so like she told me and my siblings and we were all like shocked and sort of horrified a little bit. (laughs) Because it's like, you know, there we all were like in our 20s. And it's like, you just don't want to think about your parent having sex. And you especially do not want to think about them having like more like interesting, adventurous sex than what you're having. So like the whole (laughs) thing was just a huge, huge mess. But I was always interested in, um, you know, I guess like what it means to be a woman in the world. And, you know, what are the limitations? What are the possibilities? What still needs changing? What's different? what's allowed for women that are my age that wouldn't have been allowed when my mom was young? What could she do that her mother couldn't? I don't know why, but all of those questions have always, always interested me. Let's not gloss over what you just shared with us, which I I saw in her Instagram that your (laughs) mom just got married to her partner of 17 years or 18 years. 18 years. Yeah. 18 years. So Talk to us about that first conversation and then how the relationship has evolved until now and your relationship to it. Well, let me just take you back to, I I think the year was probably 1995 or 96. And my brother, Joe, my youngest, I'm the oldest of four. So Joe's the youngest and he was in college and he had gone home to do his laundry as you do. And he called me up at work. I was a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer and he calls me up and he says, I think there's a woman living in the house. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, he's like, well, there's women's stuff here and it's not Fran's. And and I'm like, okay, well, maybe like, you know, she had a friend stay over or something. He's like, I found love letters in her bathroom. I'm like, what were you doing in her bathroom? He's like, I needed the nail clippers. <laughs> you know, long story short, what do I buy Joe every year for his birthday now? Nail clippers. But <laughs> So he'd found these letters that were like, dear Fran, after six months, the fire still burns, Karen. And, you know, so he like read me these letters and I was just like, you know, my my world was shook. So I called my mom who was working at the time. She was a teacher. And I waited till the end of the school day because I'm considerate like that. And I called her up and I said, um, you know, hey, Fran, like, what's new? And she says nothing. And I'm like, nothing going on, nothing you want to tell me. And she's like, no, not, not really. And I said, well, Joe says there's a woman living in the house. Like I didn't want to like lead with the love letters. I wanted to like work up to it. You know? So I said, like, Joe says there's this woman living here and there's this pause. And then she says, oh, that's my swim coach. Right. And I said, Fran, it's not an Olympic year. Like, why is there a swim coach living in your house? And then she's like, okay, well, that's Karen and and we're in love and she's moved in and I got to go. Bye. Click. And I'm just oh sitting gosh. there. I'm sitting there like, what just even happened to me? Like, you know, five minutes ago, my world was one way and now it's some other total different way. And I had to just be like, what was the story of her marriage? Like, what was the story of the four kids, like the four of us? I mean, were we just like compensating? And, 
you know, had she been really unhappy all that time and just felt like she couldn't be who the, who she authentically was because she'd always wanted children. She always was really clear about that. And she just said, like, there weren't ways to do that in the 70s unless you were married to a man. So, you know, I think that there's things that you know, even when you don't know them. And I think that I kind of like, even before my parents separated, even before they got divorced, even before this whole thing happened with my mom, I think that I was sort of like aware of like the tension, you know, like that there's, there's a difference between the life that you want and the life that feels authentic and the life that you're allowed to actually have. And I think that tension has informed my work. But the first girlfriend, whose name was was Karen, um, she was a smoker, and she sounded like Marge's sisters from The Simpsons, and she was a <laughs> separatist, which made things real interesting because I have brothers, you know, and she'd say things like, I don't have much use for men, but you two, you're all right, you know, to my brothers. <laughs> like, it was all just like very, she was like much younger than my mom. It was a whole scene and and they didn't last very long um we refer to karen as the lesbian training wheels in my family like she came <laughs> she came off really quickly and but my mom's been with claire for 18 years now and they're really really happy and they're really really like well suited and and good for each other and we all really love claire my daughters adore her she's like their bonus grandmother and it's really been nice you talk a lot in your work about secrets. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like this was a family secret? And do you feel like someone who's had to keep secrets? Well, I'm not even sure how much my mom was aware. Like we've asked, right? Like, I don't know what family holidays are like at your house, but in my house, it's like you eat the big like Thanksgiving meal or Passover meal or whatever. You do the dishes, you put the food away. And then like everybody sits down in the living room and we just like grill my mom about her sexuality. You know, it's like, especially when I got to be around the age that she was when she first met Karen, I was like, so Fran, when did the urges start? And she's like, Jenny, I'm not talking about this with you. I'm like, I need to know, um, you know, but <laughs> right. Cause like I, I'm married now, man. Like if this is going to happen, I gotta, I gotta plan for it. But it's funny. Like every once in a while I will run across some like Republican Christian Trumpy type. Who's just like, why are all the families on sitcoms so dysfunctional? Why are the husbands always so henpecked? Why is everybody cheating? Why are there all these secrets? Why isn't anybody just normal? And I always want to say, and I, I never like write to these people, but I always just want to be like, normal people don't make for very interesting fiction. Like, it's really, really hard to get like 12 episodes of a sitcom out of like a happily married couple where there's nothing going on and nobody's keeping secrets and, and everybody's telling the truth about everything. Like, where's the story there, you know? So like, when you're writing fiction, you need your characters to want something. You need them to start at one place and be trying to get someplace else, you know? So I think that that's why a lot of writers, not just me, but a lot of writers will sort of deal with questions of family secrets and, you know, like the illegitimate child who doesn't know she's illegitimate or the parents who were divorced who haven't told their kids that they were divorced before they married each other or whatever, whatever the story ended up being. You know, I, I think in real life, there's a fair amount of that. And certainly I've run across a fair amount of it. But I just think like for fiction, you need something like that for your plot or else you just have nowhere to go with it. I remember I once was an intern on the Vicki Lawrence show. That's how old mm -hmm. I am. And I was hosting the guest. And one of them was Iris Rayner Dart, who wrote Beaches. Yeah, and course. she said the hardest thing about being a writer is that real life is stranger than fiction. It's and true. I just I wonder when you look at people, do you see them as like a Robert Altman movie where like there's something dark going on in every house? Or do you see it as like people have white picket fences and things are really normal when you how do you see the world? I mean, I guess I've come to accept and certainly the older I've gotten that a certain amount of darkness and dysfunction is just kind of built into everybody 
when I see a white picket fence, I usually assume that there's like a body buried underneath it somewhere, <laughs> possibly several generations ago. But, you know, but also like, that's just my own imagination. Like I got to amuse myself before I do anything else. So it's like, you know, I'm always inclined to think that whatever I see, I'm like, oh, there's a story there. And my kids are sometimes like, what, mom? What's the story? I'm like, oh, there's a story there. (laughs) You know, I think having a novelist for a mother must be like, my kids are going to be, they're going to have a lot to tell their therapist someday, (laughs) I think. It must be really interesting. I don't know. What was your childhood like? I have four kids, so curious minds want to know. (laughs) Well, okay. So my mom, my mom, the closeted lesbian was a teacher. She was a school teacher. My dad was a child psychiatrist. So it was... um, My husband's dad's a child psychiatrist. I have all sorts of theories about you all. Shrinks (laughs) shrinks kids, right? Like shrinks kids and pastors kids were all messed up because, you know, because we're supposed to be sort of like professional representations of our parents' skill or holiness. But I think that my my dad, my father who died in 20... Oh God, how old is Phoebe now? My dad died in 2008 and... I think that he was one of these doctors who was drawn to psychiatry because he probably had some like undiagnosed or or untreated mental illness of his own, you know, but it was, I grew up in Connecticut. I grew up in a suburb. I grew up in this like very pretty, very preppy, very waspy part of Connecticut. There weren't many Jews. Everyone was kind of the same. There were no Black families, no Asian families, no Hispanic families, like everyone the same. And, you know, I I grew up with a lot of privilege. And then my dad left when I was 16, which sort of meant that like the bottom fell out of the paper bag that was our lives. And, you know, because my father was very inconsistent about paying his child support. So we went from being very comfortable and, you know, going on vacations and, oh, yes, you know, go to college wherever you get in, dad will take care of it to, you know, dad is no longer around to pay the bills. So it was interesting. I I got to sort of see two sides of things, which is good. Again, good training for a novelist. But yeah, I mean, and I'm I'm the oldest of four, so you know, I was the I was the big sister, I was the responsible one. I remember when I graduated from college and I came home and my mom saying to me like, "Do not even unpack your bags." And I'm like, "What do you mean? Like not even to do my laundry?" And she's like, "No, you are getting a job and you are moving out of here and I'm giving you till September 1st." which she did. And I got a job at a small newspaper and moved out, you know, but like I had to set the example for everybody else. So I did. Is that when you started calling her Fran? <laughs> I don't know when we started calling her Fran. That's so funny, but it's been you're a like, long time. You're no time longer thing. mom. You're Fran. Fran. <laughs> <laughs> and now for a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically 
which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have a, one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What is your relationship with money like? Wow. You know, I don't take it for granted. I can tell you that. Like, I think I'm a lot more aware of how much it matters and how hard it is when you don't have enough when you don't have enough for what you need. And I'm trying to raise my kids with a sense of the importance of money and the importance of being able to provide for yourself. But I also don't ever want them feeling the way that I can remember feeling where, you know, I went to register for my classes in college sophomore year and got like pulled out of the line because my dad hadn't sent a check for my tuition. And, you know, had to, like, make the walk of shame to the bursar's office and, like, you know, figuring out, like, what kind of last minute loans I could take out so I could take classes that fall. You know, I don't want my kids ever going through anything like that because it's really scary and it's really destabilizing. And I think on the one hand, it made me very driven and, you know, I wanted to be responsible for myself. I wanted to be able to take care of myself. I didn't ever want to feel like you know, there was a bill that needed paying and I wouldn't be able to pay it. So on the one hand, I I think like what happened with my parents and what happened with my dad, like made me very driven and, and a very hard worker. But I I don't know that I don't know that it's a price I'd want my own daughters paying to get those skills. Did your siblings all go to college too? They did, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm i the oldest and then I have a sister who's like 15 months younger than I am and she stayed in Connecticut to go to college. Then my brother Jake went to Syracuse and then my brother Joe, the youngest, went to the University of Connecticut on the six-year plan. We all joke. Joe, <laughs> Joe took his time to get through college, but yeah. Everyone went and we all took loans out, um, you know, and like, it was really hard. Like my dad would show up out of the blue and like write everybody checks for like a semester and things would be great. And then he'd kind of disappear again. It was very inconstant. And that's the hardest thing of all, I think, is like, 
If things are consistently one way, whether it's good or whether it's bad, at least you know what's coming and at least you know how to plan for it and you know what to expect. But if it's like, you know, if you think it's going to be one way and then everything changes, it's like, well, Jesus, what do I do now? How do I fix this? How do I compensate? You know, it was hard. It was hard. How did your relationship with money as a child impact your relationship with your first husband and your marriage today? Well, I mean, you know, I think I've always been really like conservative. Like I started a college savings fund for like a a child who did not exist yet. Like I remember selling my first book and like, I knew I wanted to have children, but I knew I didn't want to have children until like I had like money in the bank, you know, like I didn't want them ever having to like walk to the bursar's office and take loans out. So I remember like walking into like Mellon Bank at the corner of like second and chestnut in Philadelphia. I'm like, I need to open a college savings account. And they're like, okay, what's the child social security number? I'd be like, well, I'm not pregnant yet, but you know, so really, <laughs> I'm really, I'm a planner. Exactly. You know, just really, really kind of, if it was a choice between like taking a really nice vacation or making two mortgage payments that month, I'd be like, but think how much fun it'll be to know that we've made those two mortgage payments. Like I was not a fun 27 year old. I was just like, you know, but I, I think like financial insecurity shapes your life and and really you know it it puts the fear of god into you like you never want to be like scrambling for money and i was really um and you know again like questions of constancy like when i married my first husband i was a newspaper reporter who had like just sold her first novel and i had i'd gotten like a two book deal and it was a good two book deal but I knew that what happens with most people is you publish your first book. It's not a huge success just because most first books, most books at all just aren't huge successes. And I just always figured that like fiction would be sort of like extra money. Like it would be money to send a kid to private school or summer camp or whatever, but I wouldn't be the breadwinner. My husband who was an attorney would be the breadwinner. And then my first book, did very well. At the same time, he was going through this sort of downturn in his career that he completely rebounded from and is doing really well now. But like, it was just this really unfortunate kind of crisscrossing thing. And and I was just like, well, this isn't the deal I signed up for. This isn't how I thought things were going to be. And, you know, it was hard. It was hard. I think, you know, I, I really do think that it's still just hard for lots and lots of men to be married to someone who's earning more money than they are. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd like to be wrong about that. I'd like it if there were lots of men who were like, nope, totally fine. But, you know, I just think it's men are still, they're raised to be the breadwinners. They're raised to be the providers. And when a woman is out earning them, I think that it's, you know, destabilizing or emasculating or whatever word you want to use. It's hard. Have you ever had this conversation with your daughters? Yeah. What do they think of it? Well, you have to understand. So my older daughter is going to be 18 in a couple of weeks. So anything out of my mouth is just wrong. It's just automatically incorrect. So it's just like, whatever, mom. I have two teenage daughters, so I could not relate more. Yes. (laughs) And then my 13-year-old, who is like the sweetest kid in the world, I have no idea what I did to deserve her. She's just like, all right, okay. And I'm like, and that's why you always need your own money and you always need your own savings account and you don't ever, you know, merge if she's like, all right, okay. But I mean, how much of it is she taking in at 13? I do not know. I guess we'll see. You know, I I think like parents do the best they can. And and I think my parents did the best they, they could with what they had resources available to them. I know I'm doing the best that I can and their dad is doing the best that he can. So you just try. You try and you hope for the best. I want to go back for a moment to the conversation about the disparity when the female spouse is earning more, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's a bigger problem or was it your fame and your rising star that was a bigger problem? 
Oh boy, that's a good question because, you know, it's like you walk into a party and one person's a novelist and the other person is a corporate litigator. I can tell you who they want to talk who the the other party guests want to talk to more and it's not the corporate litigator. So, it might have <laughs> that that might have been a piece of it. You know, the money, the fame, the public profile, the who gets to have more fun doing what she does. I don't know, you know, and it, it's just like, you think all these times, or at least I do about like, you know, the choose your own adventure book. So it's like, if I'd ever been given a choice of like, well, I could have just kept being a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer, you know, earning what I was earning there. And, you know, wouldn't have published books, wouldn't have been able to do some of the things that I've been able to do with the money that I've made. But wouldn't have gotten divorced. It's like, what choice would I have made if both of those avenues had been available to me? And I don't know what the answer is. I don't. So how did you meet your husband? Which one? Which yeah. one? I'm on number two. Your current husband. Right. Your, your current husband. My second and final husband, as I like to call him. <laughs> I tell him yes. all the time. I'm like, you're it. I'm like, if this doesn't work out, like, you know, it's over. It's over for both of us. Okay, so we met at the very first job that either of us ever had. I was a reporter at this small newspaper outside of, well, in central Pennsylvania. It was in State College, Pennsylvania. It was my first job out of college. It was his first job out of graduate school. And I actually interviewed him for the job. Like I'd been there about a year and there was a job opening and he came to interview and I got to take him out to dinner which was a very big deal because they were paying us $16,000 a year. So having the company like pick up dinner was huge. And we just had this like great connection. And we just like talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And I remember going to work the next morning and saying to my editor, I'm like, you have to hire this guy. And my editor saying, do you think he's a really great reporter? I'm like, I have no idea, but I really like him. So I would like him to come work here. So please hire him. <laughs> And we dated for like three or four years and I was really ready to get married and he was Did he get the not... job? Oh yeah, he got the job. Yes. Yes. Okay. So he got the job and we dated and it's very funny. I'm reading a book right now about dating apps and how people meet each other now versus how they used to meet each other because work used to be a totally acceptable place to meet somebody, you know, like you could like meet somebody in your workplace and, and date my them parents and met at work, like the same way you did. My dad interviewed my mom. And I always say like, he would be arrested today for like marrying. Right. Like I probably yeah. exactly like I'd get like yanked into like some, you know, human resource office and like, you know, lectured about sexually harassing potential <laughs> hires, which I didn't do. But that was a place you could meet somebody. So like we met and we dated and I wanted to get married and he didn't. So we broke up and I married my first husband. And then, you know, we were married. We had two kids. The marriage wasn't working out. We separated. And then Bill, my second and final husband, was still single because he was waiting for me. I always say this. He's like, I really wasn't. I'm like, yeah, you were. You just don't know it. You just don't know that you were waiting for me. <laughs> So that's the story. And I was just, you know, he was in New York and I was in Philadelphia. So I lured him down here and we got married. What is his relationship like with your career? I, he's really proud of me. He's really supportive. He's an editor, which is fantastically helpful to have like a live-in editor. Although he does most of his work for Sports Illustrated and their house style is different than Simon & Schuster's. And also <laughs> his interests are not the same as, as mine. Um, he watches a lot of sports and I kind of don't care that much. But he's really terrific and he's just very, very like very laid back, very easygoing, very supportive. He, he's a really great guy for my daughters to have in their life, I think, because he's just like another man who like loves them unconditionally and supports them and thinks that they're smart and brilliant and beautiful and all the things you want your daughters to grow up believing about themselves. So I feel really lucky. Does he or do your daughters or do you show up in your books? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, definitely there's there's pieces of me in in just about every character I've written. 
There's pieces of my daughters in just about every girl I've written. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think writers are cannibals and and scavengers. And I think that like if you live with a writer, chances are you're going to show up in their book somehow. Like some piece of you, some gesture that you make or some saying that you have or some family story or something is going to show up. It, it's just the way it is. How are you as a parent? How, what would your daughter say about your parenting style? <laughs> well, um, I think they'd say that I'm funny. I think. <sighs> I think they'd say that. I mean, I don't know. It's it's The 18-year-old is just like... So my therapist is always just like, she's doing the work of separation, right? When I'm just like, she's so mean to me. She hates me. She thinks I'm stupid. She's like, but she's doing the work of separating from you. This is what she's supposed to do. Like, she has to be her own person. She's breaking away from you. She's breaking away from the family of origin. And part of that is just this sort of like repudiation. Like, she thinks you're a dum-dum. And I'm like, it hurts. And she's like, yes, I know. But I think that I hope that what they would both say is that I've encouraged them to be who they are, you know, that I've like tried to find the things they love and find the things they're good at and support them as much as I can and just encourage them and be present for them. And, but it's, it's just, it's so interesting because like parenting in the seventies, it's like, I remember when Lucy, my older daughter, was born and my mom came to like help with the baby and she's like, where's the playpen? And I'm like, oh, no, no, friend. We don't put kids in playpens anymore. Like, you know, no more, no more like baby jails. Like, we don't do that. We hold them. We wear our babies. And my mother is looking at me like, you have got to be out of your freaking mind. Like, why would you do this? Like, put the kid in the playpen and go smoke a Virginia Slim and like have a martini. Right, exactly. I was like, my right? mom smoked and had tabs. Like, smoked and had tabs. Tab. Of course they did. They all <laughs> smoked and they all drank tab and we all turned out okay mostly. But, you know, I'm just like, no, no. I'm like, the, the edamame must be organic. She's like, I don't know what either of those words mean in this context. Like, what is an edamame and why must it be organic? And I'm like, Fran! I'm with the hormones in the milk. And and she's, you know, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think my mom thinks I'm crazy, you know, but I, I also think that within, you know, on the spectrum of sort of, you know, upper class white moms of this day and age, I'm more normal than some of them are. You know, I've tried not to be like a crazy helicopter parent. Like when my daughter was going through the college application process, like every I only sent a couple of emails to the college counselor and everyone I would preface with like, please tell me if I am being like that crazy, annoying mom, because I really do not want to be that mom. But, you know, I think that like, I, I tell Lucy this, like when I applied to college, my mom's like, yeah, sure. You know, you can apply to five schools, but I'm not paying for any more than that. And no, I'm not reading your essays. Like, are you kidding me? I have things to do. I'm not going to read your essays. Like, if you want to get them typed, like, here's $10. You can hire, you know, find some secretary at the high school and see if you can pay her to type them for you. Like, just completely not plugged in the way that parents today are, where parents today really seem to treat it like it's a referendum on them and on how well they've done as moms and dads. Talk to us about raising confident girls. It's a theme in yeah. a lot of your books, and it's something that Amy and I are both obsessed with. How do you think about it? Well, I try so hard to, like, I want my daughters to feel good about how they look. I want them to feel good about who they are and what they can do and what their dreams are. And I've tried to like, as much as I can, like make our home like a safe space for them where whatever your hobbies are, whatever you want to do with your time, like I will support you. I will encourage you. I will help you as much as I can or as much as you want me to. But I also know that like the world is the world and my daughters aren't going to be able to live in a bubble as much as I'd like to keep them inside of one, you know? they're going to have to move through the world in, in female bodies. And, you know, it's like the first time my younger one got cat called, like, you know, and it was, it was pretty mild and it was just, you know, whatever, but like, I wanted to go outside 
and, and like burn the world down. You know, I'm like, what do you mean you yelled something about my child's tits? Like what, what is wrong with you? And, and just like, why is this still the place where we find ourselves still? I mean, it's hard. It, it really is because getting ready to send girls out into the world and knowing how much the world still needs fixing is hard. Yeah. Were you always this confident? No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, I well, let me think. How am I going to answer that? I mean, so I think I just like had no social skills. And so I didn't really care if I was a weirdo or if people thought I was a weirdo. Like, I skipped third grade, which they don't do anymore because they realized it was like creating like a, a class of just like kids with absolutely no social skills. But like, you know, I had this like huge vocabulary and no friends for a really long time. And so I think like I was outspoken because there was really no downside to it. Like the popular girls weren't going to stop being friends with me because they had never been friends with me to begin with. So I guess I kind of was confident always in a way. I just didn't care. And now for a quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's gonna catch you down the road. Go through it, deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums. 
to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jealousy is a theme in your books, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone that you're jealous of? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I can still probably tell you the names of the popular girls in my high school and like what they wore to school, you know, the brands of the clothes that they had that I wanted and couldn't get because my mom just didn't see the point of it. Or if I could convince her that there was a point to it, we just didn't have the money for it by then. But yeah, I mean, you know, and I also grew up with a sister who's like very close to me in age, who's just always been like the thin, pretty one. And, you know, I'm sure that there's things about me that she envies and wishes that she'd gotten, you know, when when God was sort of handing out the, okay, like, you're going to be a really talented writer, but you're going to be a size two for your whole life and just not even have to work at it. You know, maybe she would have traded. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I think like, that's just part of the female condition is always the female condition in capitalism, anyhow, is just like, always looking at somebody else and wishing you had what they had, because that's, you know, that's how companies make money. It's like, if you just go to the gym, you could have that body, or if you just follow this diet, or you get this plastic surgery, or you buy this cosmetic, or this dress, or these shoes, or this house in this neighborhood, you know, and, and you can buy your way to the life that you want. And I think that keeping us all sort of envious of one another is a way of, you know, keeping the money stacks stacking. Can we go back for a moment to your first book? As you mentioned, you know, 95% of books don't even sell 5,000 copies or more, right? So your first book became a hit. What went into that? And what would you say to writers out there who have dreams so that they're not individually asking you for favors or to pick your brain, (laughs) the worst words ever, right? (laughs) But instead, we'll tell them in this podcast what Mm -hmm. you would say to them. Okay. Well, so Good in Bed was, it came out of a breakup. Like I had dated this guy who I really thought I was going to marry. This was after Bill, who who I did marry. This was somebody else. And I, you know, madly in love, head over heels, thought we'd be together forever. And then we weren't. And I was a wreck and just totally devastated and and crying all the time and just talking about him endlessly to my friends and like trying to stalk him before the internet existed, which was super hard. Like I had to do (laughs) drive-bys and he lived two hours away. It was a whole disaster. And I finally decided like, okay, what do I know how to do? Like, what can I do to make myself feel better? And I thought like, I know how to tell a story you know, I'd been an English major, I'd been a journalist, I'd published short fiction, I always been writing this whole time. And I said, I'm going to write a story about a girl like me, and a guy like Satan, basically like him, and I'm going to give the girl a happy ending. And I gave the girl like, all of my craziness, like my whole messed up family, all that Michigas, all of my insecurities, like, you know, size 16 body, gay mom, dad who was out of the picture, all of it. And I was able to do that because I didn't have an agent. I didn't have a publisher. I didn't have a publishing deal. I was just writing it really for myself, like just to amuse myself and get myself out of this like terrible, dark place that I'd fallen into. And I think that what made the book successful was I didn't kind of sand down the rough edges. I just let it be authentically what it was. You know, I let the character be authentically who she was, which was different than any character that was out there at the time. Like, there really weren't plus size women even in fiction, just even on paper where you'd think it would be safe, like it wasn't on TV or in a movie where you have to look at her and cast someone to play her. It was just like in a book. But even even still, the only like, quote unquote, fat women I remember reading about, like, 
they were either like the funny best friends or they had to lose a ton of weight before they got a happy ending. And I just let my heroine be authentic. And I think that authenticity is, you know, when in doubt, that's, that's always the way to go. It's just like, do something that's authentic and something different and have something to say. And that's the secret to success. Talk about Philadelphia, because it is unusual for someone of your profile and success to not only start out in Philadelphia, but to stay there. Yeah, no. I mean, um, whenever I have meetings, people are just like, so what part of New York do you live in? And I'm like, the Philadelphia part, (laughs) the part that's not New York. Um, I mean, the thing is, like, I really like it here. I liked working here as a reporter as a newspaper reporter. I liked living here as a mom. I've always been like really, really comfortable here and really, really happy here. And also, I think, was able to sort of watch other women my age, like trying to have families in New York City and just seeing how expensive that was, how difficult that was, how competitive it was, like just watching... um, you know, kids compete to get into quote unquote, the right preschool, like the 92nd Street Y preschool. And like, I I had to write like letters of recommendation for my friend's kids when they were like 18 months old to like get them right. And I'm just like, this is madness. This is madness. Like in Philadelphia, you know how you get into the hot preschool, you you give them a $200 deposit check and sign (laughs) up and that's it. So I never wanted to leave. I like it here. I I think there's lots of stories to tell here. And I think for people like, you know, there's lots of great books set in New York and in L.A. But I also think that sometimes people want to read books that are set other places. So it worked. Do you feel like you'd be more anonymous, though, if you were in New York? I imagine you're a very big fish in a small pond in Philly. Only when I do my hair. Only when I do, the only time I ever get recognized is like literally when I am like coming right out of the hairdresser. And I mean, I guess, you know, but only in so far, like in Philadelphia, I always joke like the, the meteorologists are huge celebrities here. Like it's true, (laughs) you know, but people here, nobody, nobody really makes that big of a deal about it. I mean, like sometimes my kids get embarrassed. Like I was doing a fundraiser for Lucy's school once and she came home like in a, in a mood and she's like, there's posters of you in my school with your name on them. And I'm like, well, dude, like we don't even have the same last name. She's like, everyone knows you're my mom. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. I, I didn't realize it was a bad thing, but I guess it is. How do you deal with the changing world in your writing? Like we talked earlier about your your mother and mm-hmm. what she was allowed to do in her 40s or 50s. And, you know, it's like it is probably slightly different today, but maybe not enough different. But like how do you deal with changing culture in your writing? And like when you go back and read your earlier books, do they still resonate with you and all of that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because Good in Bed is being adapted right now. So somebody's writing a screenplay for it. And I'm just remembering when I wrote it, like what happens is the main character is like goes through this like horribly humiliating experience because her ex-boyfriend publishes a magazine article about her body. And I'm like, magazine article like you know she has to like go to a newsstand to like get the magazine to see what he's written because there's no internet yet and I'm like if this were today like you know he'd be like the curvy wife guy on Instagram like he'd just put up some Instagram post and then she'd lose her mind you know I think all you can do is the best you can do and and try to keep up in a way that feels authentic like you know I like to do TikTok and that feels authentic and it doesn't feel like a total like drain or like it's totally inappropriate. But like when Snapchat happened and for a while they were trying to like make authors do Snapchat, I was like, I will not be doing Snapchat. Would you say that body acceptance has changed over the years since you started writing? I do think there's been some progress. And the reason that I say that is you can go onto Instagram or you'd go onto TikTok and like type in the hashtag like body positivity or fat acceptance or size inclusive or whatever. And you can see just like women with bodies of all shapes and sizes and ages and races, just like 
living their lives, doing their things, you know, dancing, swimming, outfits of the day, bathing suit try-ons, like whatever it is. And you couldn't see that when I was a teenager or in my 20s. Like, I tell my daughters this all the time. I'm like, you guys get Lizzo. Like, do you know who I had? I had Carney Wilson hiding behind like a, a paper mache boulder that just like had landed on the video set because like they couldn't show her body and she wasn't even that big. Right. Like, yep. so that has changed. And, and I do see progress. I think there's still a long way to go, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think things are getting better and I, I hope that in some small way, like I've been part of that change and part of that progress. And your book covers seem to represent that progress. Yeah, we're finally, finally, finally getting some like actual like curvy women on my covers. Like for a long time, they were using photos. They they would buy stock photos. And for a long time, there just weren't any stock photos of plus size people. So like I was really like stuck. But but now they're actually illustrating my covers and they're doing like commissioning art. And so there can actually be like a larger body, which makes me very happy. That's amazing. Who are your best friends? This is an Amy question, but who are your best friends? Um, so my best friends are my friend Susan, who's like, these are two women who I met like 25 years ago when I first came to Philadelphia, my friend Susan and my friend Elizabeth. And they're like my Philadelphia girls. And we've, you know, seen kids born and parents die and, you know we've just been part of each other's lives for a really long time. And I hope we'll continue to be part of each other's lives for a really long time. That's awesome. Yeah. Talk to us about The Bachelor, because you are known for your tweets about The Bachelor. And when I used to watch religiously, I would go literally, I would be looking at your Twitter feed while I was watching. (laughs) I actually had to give it up. Donald Trump of all the damage that man has done, he made me quit The Bachelor after <laughs> all my years. Because what happened was 2015, the summer of 2015, there was a season of The Bachelorette and there was this guy whose name was literally Chad. And he was this giant, like meathead monster of a guy, like a total jerky bully. And, you know, he was like the one that you knew the girl wasn't going to ever end up with him like in a million billion years, but you also knew the producers weren't going to get rid of him because he was good TV. So Chad was the guy that you love to hate. And then, you know, he finally gets voted off the island and whoever the bachelorette was picks her guy and they go off. And, and then it was like, I remember literally changing the channel and it was the Republican primary debate and Donald Trump was Chad. Like you could see it happening. You could see those newscasters be like, there is no way America, a.k.a. The Bachelorette, is going to pick this midi- this idiot meathead, but he sure makes for good TV, so we'll keep him around. And then I felt like they just kept him around and kept him around and kept him around, and then he was president. And I'm like, this is my fault, which, you know, it wasn't entirely my fault. It wasn't completely my fault. It wasn't a perfect parallel. But I feel like... There was some, you know, Donald Trump came from the world of reality TV, and I feel like The Bachelor is is one of those things that made him plausible. And I just felt so bad. And then also, like, I was just getting to a point in my life and my daughters were getting to an age where, like, it was just getting harder and harder to justify. Like, as a feminist, as a mom, I was just like it's trashy and it's silly and it's degrading and they are finding absolutely any excuse they can to put these girls in bathing suits. So lightning round. Okay. What are you reading right now? I just finished Cynthia Dupree Sweeney's book, Good Company. And I just started a book called The Other Black Girl. Who leaves you starstruck? Oh God, Harrison Ford. What is your nighttime routine? I watch TV with my husband. We're watching The Americans right now, which I really, really Mm. like. I am usually in bed by like 1030. I read for anywhere from half an hour to an hour, and then I conk right out. How many more books will you write? I don't know. You know, I never want to look too far ahead, but I'm working on one right now that I really, really like. So I can tell you at least one more. There's no way it's just one more. What would you do after that? I don't know. I don't know. Learn to hula dance? I don't know. (laughs) Where is the first place you'll go 
after the pandemic. When this is all over, my husband and I were supposed to go to Alaska last summer for my 50th birthday. And we obviously did not get to do that. So I think we'll go to Alaska and take that trip. Here is Lou. All right, Lou, here we go. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Right? <laughs> First off, I was just admiring the smiles while you were telling the stories. <laughs> And you have a, a really amazing smile. It really lights up the room. Thank you. So my question is, is in regards to body shaming. I have a 12-year-old daughter mm -hmm. who has recently made me aware of, of men and their, I guess, weirdness around women who have bigger body parts, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. i.e. butt. Mm -hmm. And she made me aware of this. And it made me now aware of what I do, mm -hmm. you know. So it really shifted my perspective. Mm -hmm. So I would like to hopefully hear a story uh, in regards to m maybe when you were body shamed or a cat called uh, because her perspective helped me change my behavior. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that when a man hears this, maybe his perspective oh, may change also. That's a really, really great question and a really important question, too, because I think that it can't be just on women to change the way the world is. I think like men have to own their piece of it, you know, but I, I guess, I mean, the most recent example that I can think of is like, okay, so my, my 13 year old daughter, her school just started up again in person and they finally were able to start swim team up again. And she's like, you know, she had her first swim team yesterday. She comes home. I'm like, how was it? And she's like, well, the swimming part was great. And I'm like, well, what wasn't great? And she said, they made all the girls like stand there in our bathing suits. And the boys were all just dressed because they all had their bathing suits on like under their, their shorts or their pants or whatever. And I'm like, do you think the teacher like noticed that or, or noticed it was weird? And she's like, no, I, I don't think he did. I mean, it feels like such a small thing, but I would say that like, whenever you're in a situation, especially with kids, especially with young women, just try to put yourself in their place. Like imagine you're the most insecure, the least confident, the least comfortable of all of them. And just think like, what can I do to like take this off of her a little bit? Like, what can I do to put everybody on an even playing field? You know, can I just say, okay, let's everybody get dressed now or just everybody get in the water right now? You know, like, how can I treat kids so that they're all the same and so that it's not just girls equal their bodies and boys equal the integrity of who they are? I think that's what I'd say. I feel like I could have talked to Jennifer for hours and I really want to go to Philadelphia and have five drinks with her. As we well. have to do that. She <laughs> should be on our, our tour. She has to be. Uh, so, you know, the thing that the thing that kept coming up for me, I mean, she's just so insightful, but so much revolves around the way she looks at the world and what the female condition is. Right. And I just think there's so much to that in thinking of like how we see the world, but also how the world sees us. And sometimes I overlook that. Right. And, and I think it's just it's just interesting to think about like how we move forward and try to make that something different because when she was talking about how with her sister like you know when it, she made the comment like if god was handing out like you'll be a great writer you'll be a size two like and maybe her sister would have wanted to swap there is no like that phrase wouldn't even come up from a male perspective right and the world is just so different for women it still is yeah i mean it's funny i i see a lot of brothers who are competitive so i do think there's an aspect or an element of that that comes up for men. But I, I see what you're saying. I think that one one thing that really struck me was her confidence came from her childhood, right? So like even though she had some instability in her childhood, she also just clearly had like an amazing mom who was a feminist and instilled a lot of strength mm -hmm. in her. And that is what propelled her to where she is today. I think you and I, Amy, so often talk about who's, who are the badass CEOs, right? And we don't often talk about like how great is it that there's a badass novelist and how great is it that there's a badass woman infectious disease doctor? Like that's what gives me hope, honestly, because she's not just out there writing these novels. She actually is out there talking about politics to her followers. She she really does use her microphone mm -hmm. in a in a really responsible way. Yeah, she does. And she has an amazing microphone, an amazing voice and I mean, she's just there's there's so much there. 
And like I said, I think I could have talked to her for about five more hours. Well, it's so funny because this morning I wrote you and I was like, I, I really want, I never say this. I don't think I've ever said this in my life, but I want to be Jennifer Weiner when I grow up. And you're like, what? But there's just, I don't know what it is. I'm obsessed <laughs> with her. <laughs> She's really cool. I, it was, for me, it was interesting too to hear. She does, she obviously has like a really strong family unit and has a lot of confidence from her childhood, but she also like, it wasn't like she was the most popular kid in school, right? And she didn't have everything she wanted, but she just kept kind of kept moving forward. I remember when my kids first started elementary school and I would hear some of the moms say, I just want my daughter to be popular. And I was like, what? I don't think anything good happens to the popular kids. Like I was never the popular kid. I had my group of friends, but I wasn't in the popular crowd. I was like tangential. And I've always been like that my whole life. Like I handpicked mm-hmm. my friends. And I always thought the worst thing that it could happen to my kids is that they get into the popular group because they're chasing something and it's never something very good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot to that. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would so appreciate if you would leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para, our social media manager, Phoebe Cranefuss, and our male perspective, Lou Burns. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Voice. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.